You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Demetrius White on Sunday, September 13, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Today we engage one of the most alarming passages of Scripture. Alarming because of its blunt truth, dreadful because of its warning, depressing because of the results received by those who lack discernment. The parable of the ten virgins is here to jar us from our spiritual slumber. And in order to understand this story, we must understand the preceding chapters or the chapters before it. Jesus has just finished his Olivet Discourse. And during this sermon, Jesus unravels the mystery of his second coming and assures us of its certainty. He warns his readers of the precursors to his second coming. Matthew 24, 3 through 14. The severity of his second coming. Matthew 24, 15 through 28. The nature of his second coming. Matthew 24, 29 through 31. The blessing and horror of his second coming. Matthew 24, 32 through 49. Blessing to those who are wise servants. Horror to those servants who do not expect his coming and prepare for his coming. Immediately after this discourse, he reinforces the truth by giving us three parables. The parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, the parable of the sheep and the goats. These parables are given to accentuate, accentuate the importance of being spiritually prepared to meet Christ when he comes. Revelation 1-7 says that every eye will behold him and many will well on account of his universal return to the earth. Now, dearly beloved, this calls the church, calls the people of God, this passage to watchfulness. We do not know, I do not know when Jesus Christ will return universally. I don't. But I tell you what, we must prepare. And we must prepare for something personally. His return for our souls in death. This applies to us in the here and now. You see, when we die, we will have to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it is at that time, whether it's his universal return to the earth or when he returns for us personally, we will have to give an account for our life. And it will be then that what we truly were in life, what we trusted in, what we truly desired will be exposed. It is there that you will find out if you were simply an associate of Christ, a simple professor of Christ, or one who has a living relationship with Christ because of his finished work. The clarion call of these parables ring clearly in our ears. Are we like the wise virgins who prepared for the bridegroom? Are we like the wise servants who joyfully submitted to the lordship of their master? Are we sheep who submit to the great shepherd or goats who strive in rebellion against Christ? Dear friends, don't be deceived this morning. Christianity is not a religion filled with these thou's and don'ts. 
Christianity is first a rescue, a transformation, then it ushers us into a relationship. It is a walk, and then it is a warfare against the world, the devil, and the flesh. It is a mortification. It is a killing of the world, the devil, and the flesh in your personal life. And only you and the Holy Spirit know if that's happening in your individual life. There are many today in the church who profess to know Christ, many who assent to theological points, many who are apologetically and philosophically sound, but they do not know the Christ of the Bible. They know a Christ who allows for compromise, a Christ who saves from hell but not sin, a Christ who has mastered. He is conformed to our political leanings, our cultural norms and ideologies. We attempt to defang the lion of the tribe of Judah. We attempt to master him. But I'm going to give you the real deal this morning. Jesus Christ will never be mastered. He only knows one title. And that title is Lord. And if you will not have him as Lord, you will not have him at all. This is the plight of American evangelical Christianity. With the American Christ, we are given a crown without a cross, indulgence without denial, a servant without a sovereign which we are to obey. I don't know many things this morning, but I know three things about Jesus Christ. He died to save you from your sin. He died to give you eternal life. And he died to give you a cross to die on. Is that your Christianity? Is your Christianity a a sum of man-centeredness? Or is your Christianity one that is lived to the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ? This here is odious to the flesh. And this is why we must understand what this parable is trying to convey to us this morning. There are three things that I want us to glean from this parable. First, I want us to understand the terrible story before us. Number one, I want us to understand the terrible story before us. Number two, there is a call to an essential and uncomfortable examination of our own lives and our own souls. And number three, we will see a devastating result if we don't do so. Number one, terrible story. Number two, an essential and uncomfortable examination and a devastating result. Let us look at, at the terrible story In this parable, we are given an alarming story. This parable is a description of the Eastern marriage ceremony. And this time was a time of great fellowship, joy, and happiness. A wedding was a pinnacle of the Eastern culture. There are many details left out of this particular event in Matthew 25. However, Jesus is focusing our attention upon certain aspects of the marriage ceremony to drive his point home. 
There was a process to this marriage. Number one, there was the engagement. The engagement was arranged by the fathers of the bride and the groom. This engagement was established by a contract of marriage. The groom had little involvement. Number two, there was the betrothal. The betrothal the, at the betrothal, the bride and the groom would exchange vows in the presence of their family and friends. At that point, the couple was considered married. The betrothal could last for many months. Sometimes it could last for a year. It was during this time period that the groom would go away to establish himself in business or trade and would go off and prepare a place for he and his bride. Doesn't that sound familiar? The wedding feast. At the end of the betrothal, the wedding feast would be held and the entire community would be involved. These festivities could last up into an, an entire week. These festivities begin with the groom coming with the groomsmen to the bride's house where the bridesmaids were waiting for her. Together they would parade through the streets proclaiming that the wedding feast was about to begin. They would light torches or lamps to illuminate their way to attract attention. And then there was the consummation. I don't have to say too much about that, do I? The bride and the groom got together. How about that? Now, understanding the context of this ceremony, Jesus points us to ten versions. These versions were responsible for helping the bride prepare for the wedding and the return of the bridegroom. In, the, in this story, the bridesmaids traditionally were waiting for the procession to the wedding feast, and they were to be ready. And they knew they were to be ready. This was a part of their culture. This was common knowledge. They knew it, and they denied it. They knew they were to be ready with their lamps and the oil. No one dared question these virgins or the state of their preparedness. You see, these were good girls. These were girls, for you fathers that, that have daughters, these were girls that you gloried in, that you watched out for, that you made sure they didn't marry a hoodlum. These were good girls. They knew the rules. They were attendants of the bride. They even frequented the house of the bride. They worked themselves to exhaustion, maybe, preparing the bride, but not themselves. They took the opportunity to get some sleep. However, the midnight cry was given, and they were jarred. The bridegroom appeared, and the difference between the ten became apparent. They were versions. They were helpful. They had the right title. They followed the rules, but they lacked the most important thing, the thing that would lead them to the marriage supper, that fueled their lamps. They were missing the oil. I'm going to say this like Robert this morning. Think like a human. Huh? That's his famous phrase, right? I want you to think. I want you to place yourself in this story. 
Think about the horror and the dread that you would have felt at this moment if you were a bridesmaid. Can you imagine what they were feeling? It must have been horrendous. Theologian Craig Keener says this in his historical commentary on this passage. During this time period and in this culture, being unprepared for the wedding feast was insulting to the bridegroom. And to be shut out of the feast was a nightmare to bridesmaids. They lived for this. They were supposed to. It was at this time that the bridesmaids knew that there would be no place for people, for girls, yes, even virgins who were not prepared, who had no oil available for the procession. They looked to their friends and asked for oil, but could not find any. And this proved to be fatal. This reminds me of Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him when he is near. You know, we live our lives as if we aren't going to die. We live in this world as if Jesus Christ will never return. Because of the grace of God at times, his common grace to the world, his special grace to us, we live for ourselves. We think nothing of it. And these versions took their preparation for granted and they did not consider the ramifications of having no oil and they cried out to the Lord, 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 open to us. They had everything but one thing. They had everything but one thing. Many of us here in America we have everything. We have the walk. We have the talk. We have our Christianese. Don't we? Man, we can talk that Christianese. Many of us have everything. But when it comes down to it, when the rubber meets the road, we don't have that one thing. And we're lost because of it. And there are people in churches just like this. Preach the word every Sunday. Teach the word every Sunday. Fellowship with Christians who are dying in these pews and going right to hell. Because, you see, they have everything but one thing. They're like the five foolish versions. What does this story have to do with 21st century Christians? Everything. Everything. This brings us to point number two. An essential and uncomfortable examination. Paul said this to the Corinthian church. 
Here's a church. You know, if I were to do a series on the book of Corinthians, I would call it Circus Church. That would be the title of the series, right? These people were going crazy. One guy had relations with his stepmother, huh? I haven't heard that in church. He's doing it. It's happened, but I haven't heard it here, I'm saying. You have people saying, I'm a Paul, I'm a Apollos. Huh? You have people swinging off of chandeliers with spiritual gifts. You have people that are following false apostles and discrediting Paul's ministry. And you know what Paul says after he examines the landscape? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. The mighty apostle looked at the fruit of that church and he commanded and he called them to examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith. Let me tell you something. Do you think this is harsh what I'm saying to you? This is the most loving thing I can say to you. You are on this side of eternity. You are not before the Lord. You are not in heaven. You are not in hell. But once you get there, there are no second chances. This has everything to do with us. If the five foolish virgins had only taken time to examine their situation, take inventory, scrutinize the circumstances, they would not have ended up as foolish virgins, but they did not take a second look to make sure that they had what they needed to enter the blessed feast. You know, when we read Matthew 25, 1 through 13, we often fail to see the dilemma at hand. We are all guilty of it, right? We look at this passage and we, we believe this passage is saying that the five foolish versions had some oil, a fraction of oil, or a little bit of oil, but Jesus Christ himself says in verse 3, they had no oil. Do you see that? They didn't have any oil. The text is a warning to false assurance. Do you know Christ this morning? You can come to this church for the rest of your life and not know Christ. You can try to impress the staff here with your knowledge of the doctrines of grace. With the systematic theologies you have written or read. And you can die and go to hell. You may know the creeds. But you may die and go to hell. This is a warning to false assurance. They had 
no oil, and you see it is like this in the church today. Many people coming to church, many people resting on externals, they come to the church service, they never miss a Sunday. You even serve the church, you serve the bride, you attend to the bride, you serve communion, you tend to her needs, you serve her cause, you feed the poor, you fight for life and equality, you worship with the church, you have the religion of Christianity, but you do not have the relationship of Christianity. And if you do not wake up, Christ will on the last day say, I never knew you. You may know Christ, but the question is, does he know you? Do you rest on activism, Bible reading, tithing? Do you mark off God's righteous report card? Is that what you're trying to do to earn your salvation? Rubbish. Inside, behind closed doors, you're like a Pharisee, a whitewashed tomb with dead men's bones. You're like a ravenous wolf in sheep's clothing. You're like a dog who returns to its vomit. And when the doors are closed, it will become apparent that that's what you were the whole time. What are you trusting in? You come to Mount Zion on Sunday, but you live in Babylon the rest of the week. You have no thoughts of Christ the rest of the week. Your neighbor you could care less about. There's no movement of repentance in your life. You live on Mount Zion on Sunday and Babylon the rest of the week. This passage of scripture should call us to examine ourselves Like the five foolish virgins who lack what was essential to enter into the wedding feast. If we do not examine ourselves, we will come and find out that we lack what is essential to enter into the very kingdom of God. Demetrius, what is it that we lack? What is it? Romans 8, 9 says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to God. The wise virgins had their oil. The foolish had none. The true Christian has the essential person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, applying the eternal work of the Father and the redeeming work of the Son upon their lives, and false ones do not. The Holy Spirit is living in and through them. He takes the electing grace of the Father and the redeeming work of the Son And he puts it to work. Internally, they work 
through the Holy Spirit in the chamber of the hearts. And they impact your desires, your will, your perspectives. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who works in you, lives in you, works out of you to conform you to the image of Christ. Romans 8.29. Question. Is the Holy Spirit at work in your life? Is that essential person that the Christian, the true Christian needs? Is he at work in your life? God does not come to make bad men better. He comes to make dead men live. God does not come to whitewash you. He comes to change you. And he comes to give you a Christ who is powerful enough to change you. A Christ who is strong enough and loving enough and compelling enough that your sin is willingly given away. When the Spirit moves in the heart of the true convert. He cleanses them from all of their idols and he gives you a new heart with new affections and empowers you to walk in his commandments. There was a family that came to me a couple of years ago. No, they never attended this church with some Christian friends. They came to me and they were disturbed because their son was a professed Christian. He had won Bible quizzes. He had gone to every Bible camp. He looked the part. He played the part. He wore his Brooks Brothers to church in his khakis. Huh? He even spoke in front of the church. You know where he is now? In those streets. In the streets. He wants nothing to do with Christ. He looked like a Christian. He talked like a Christian. He knew the Christianese, and when the rubber met the road, he was not. He did not have the essential work of the Holy Spirit. We went through 1 John, because 1 John, 1, 1, 1 John 5, 13 it is, says that he wrote that book that you may examine yourself to see if you have eternal life. We went through the sin test. We went through the doctrinal test. What does he believe about Christ? We went through his relationship, the relationship test. I didn't convince them. I didn't say anything. You know what came out? He's lost. If the Holy Spirit is not at work to conform you to Christ, you must examine yourself. 
Well, Demetrius, you know, we're not perfect. Dear friends, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. This text does not give me the freedom to preach to you sinless perfection. You see, notice here in verse 5 concerning the ten virgins. They all succumb to the same thing, drowsiness. They all did. You know, many of us Christians, we can fall into some devastating sins. Grievous sins. Sins that grieve the Spirit of God. But the difference is this. The true Christian cannot and will not for one moment excuse those sins. They fight those sins. They weep at times over those sins. They cry out like Paul, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? You know that song, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins? That one verse in there makes me cry every time. I don't do it in front of my family. I go into the closet and do it if you want to know, okay? But when that one verse says, to be saved to sin no more, I have wept many a time over that one verse. And I say, man, what will that be like to serve God without indwelling sin? Listen, the true Christian hates sin, fights sin, weeps over sin, takes steps to cut off and pluck out access to sin. That is what the true Christian does. We're not talking about sinless perfection. We're talking about the direction of your life. This brings me to examination question number one. Are you walking in step with the Spirit? Are you walking in step with the Spirit? Romans 8 confirms that those who have the most essential thing, the work of the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, walk in the Spirit. Romans 8, 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The word according gives a sense that one is being conformed to the Spirit's dictates and grace. It is talking about the direction or the bent of your life. Listen, where are you walking today? Are you walking in step with the Spirit? Is the Spirit at work in your life according to Galatians 5.22? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How does that look in your life? Huh? I was talking to a guy at work the other day. And we were talking about the word, and he said, man, pray for me. I said, what's going on? He said, man, I'm, I'm just sick. I'm sick of this sin in my life. I'm sick of it. He said, I find myself falling from time to time to this sin, Demetrius. Help me. 
pray for me. I'm thinking this guy's going to say, hey, I'm suffering with pornography or I'm suffering with this or that. I said, sure, man, what's going on? He said, man, every time I get around people at work who are gossiping, I dive right in. And he says, and the Spirit convicts me. And he tells me that I am not loving my neighbor as myself when I do so. Pray for me. You know what I said to myself? I said, this is a man who is walking in step with the Spirit. This is a man who's not just worried about what we call big sins, fornication, adultery, murder, those big sins. He's concerned about every sin. Yes, even those respectable sins. Are you walking in step with the Spirit? Is your life characterized by the work of the flesh? Galatians 5, 19 through 21. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, Paul says, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not. Listen, is your life characterized by sexual immorality? Are you enslaved to pornography? Huh? I'm being blunt here today because I love you. Are you still clicking? Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Are you sowing discord in the church? Oh, well, it's a respectful sin. I mean, I'm not hurt. Are you sowing discord? I didn't write this. The Holy Spirit through Paul wrote this. Are you sowing discord? Are you taking the good gifts of God and turning them the good things and making them God things? Is your life characterized by drunkenness? Examine yourself. Are, is your life characterized by witchcraft? You say, well, nobody in this church practicing witchcraft. You know, this word is pharmakia. It's talking about the use of illegal drugs. Is your life characterized by that? I'm going to keep it simple for you. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're like Esau, man. You're going to sell your life for a bowl of beans. Wake up. This is serious. 
You're going to sell the most important thing you have, your soul. You're going to gain the whole world, but lose your soul. Wake up. Examination question number two. How is your view of yourself? Do you think you're doing okay? Hey, I'm fine, man. I come to church. I, I take communion. I hang out with Chris Rocco. That's my guy. I'm doing okay. How is your view of yourself? You know, the, 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 the versions here, they could not see the error of their ways somehow. In some way, they could not see that they were missing this one thing, the oil. It can be that way with us. I'm not up here talking to you as some self-righteous person. When I studied this entire passage, I talked to my wife about it. I said, man, I am searching my own heart. I studied the whole passage. And the parable of the servant, the talents, is the one that really got me. The parable of the goats destroyed me. Because those people, Jesus says, hey, you visit, did you visit me in prison? Did you feed me? And they said, the goats said, when did we ever see you? He said, if you've done this to the least of my brethren, you have done this to me. They were living for themselves. The goats, all they did to go to hell was live for themselves. Go to work, dress up in their Brooks Brothers, drive their Lexus, live in their manicured neighborhood, and they went to hell. Living for the world. How is your view of yourself? You see, when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ and His essential work shows up in our lives, He convicts us of sin. John 16, 8. In the Greek, it says He, con he convinces us of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It wasn't until... The Holy Spirit worked in my life that I saw that my sin was exceedingly sinful because it wasn't just against my neighbor. It was against a holy God. The Holy Spirit uses the sword of the Spirit to convict us of our sin. You know, we read the Bible in a way that we make ourselves the hero of the story. We look at these stories and we look at these Old Testament characters and we say, man, these guys are idiots. The Holy Spirit turns that around if he's at work. He says, listen, Demetrius, you are like Saul. You're a rebel. You're arrogant like Absalom. You lust for godhood like Lucifer. You must examine yourself. 
The Holy Spirit convinces us that we are poor in spirit and he throws us into the sea of our sinfulness that we may find no hope in our service, our knowledge, our rituals, that we may cry out for mercy. He destroys all hope in self and he points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when my son Maddox was a little boy Little tiny guy. He was all over the place. He still is. He's just active all the time. Just like my little daughter. They just all over the place. And I was outside washing my car. And I had this big old bucket of water. And he comes and he's like, and I'm carrying it. He's like, I want to carry it. I want to carry it. And he's bouncing around. He's bouncing and dancing all around me. I want to carry it. I want to carry it. I want to carry it. Daddy, I want to carry it. And I'm, I mean, he's getting on my nerves, right? And I said, hey, Maddox, here, there you go. Have at it. Knock yourself out. He picks this bucket, or he tries to, and the veins in his neck are about to burst. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Because Maddox cried out to me again, Daddy, help me. Help me. The Holy Spirit exposes your sin, but he does not leave you that way. He exposes it. He shows you the exceeding sinfulness of it, that you may cry out for help. Is that happening in your life? And then he points you to Christ. This brings me to my last question of examination. How is your view of Christ this morning? The five foolish versions minimize the wedding ceremony and the bridegroom, and they failed to consider his return and the steps needed to prepare for his coming. They minimize and did not maximize. How is your view of Christ this morning? Is Christ a fixture to your life? Someone you can add on to your life? Hey, Demetrius, Jesus Christ is first place in my life. That's too small. Jesus Christ can't be first, second, or third. He must be everything. Or he will be nothing. Jesus says in John 16, 14, when the Spirit of God comes into the life of men, he will exalt Jesus Christ. And John says something that's equally important in 14 and 15. He says he will take what is mine, my word, and he will show it to you. Are you living by the word of Christ this morning? You know, there are all kinds of canons out here. Huh? There's the atheist canon. There's a socialist canon. Huh? There's the man-centered canon of Scripture. What are you living your life by? There's a philosopher's canon of life and how to do it. It has nothing to do with this. 
Are you living your life according to Christ's word? The Spirit of God is at work in His people to help us live our lives according to Christ's word. How do you attack the issues of the day? Ask yourself that question. Someone came to me and they were talking about the former president and they were talking about the current president. They were negative about both of them. You know what I said? Scripture tells me in 1 Timothy 2 that we as Christians are to pray for them, not picket them. Pray for them. Why? That they may come to know Christ. Are you doing that? Is your life marked by that for those in authority? I'm sad to say a lot of Christians don't live this way because a lot of them aren't Christians. And that's why you have people running out in the world, running out of churches with their heads spinning around like Rosemary's baby or something. How many of you face the issues of the day with Christ's word? Do you have the Holy Spirit at work in your life? If you don't, you must examine yourself. This brings me to my last point, a devastating result. Verse 11, they came to the door. They knocked. The bridegroom opens panel there and they asked to come in now I'm sure the bridegroom saw them before let us in they assumed they knew him Lord Lord you know Jesus says on the last day Matthew 7 21 through 23, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not done this or that in your name? And you know what he's going to say? I never knew you. I never knew you intimately. Amos 3, 4 says, out of all the people of the earth, God said, only Israel I have known. It's not that he did not know them intellectually, all nations. He did not know nations intimately. He did not engage them. The devastating result is that if you do not know Christ, you will be locked out, cast out into outer darkness, and thrown into eternal punishment to suffer before the presence of Christ, Revelation 14, 10, in the presence of Christ and his angels, day after day, month after month, week after week, minute by minute, second by second, constantly being destroyed in the presence of Christ. Don't ask me. D, what do you make of that? Because I can't comprehend it. But all I know, it's devastating. Jesus Christ died for your sins. 
Jesus Christ is asking you to give up all of your hope and whatever you're resting your salvation in. God the Father loved us so much that he sent his son. And I can assure you, if you rest in Christ alone, he will give you salvation and he will give you his spirit and he will change you to live for his glory and his glory alone. Come to him. Repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ. Go home today and cry out for God. Ask him to save you. And he will in no wise cast you out. We fight for everything else. We fight to get out of church on time to go see some NFL game. Go see some soccer game. Will you not like Jacob wrestle with the Almighty that you may walk with a limp? That he may give you another name that he may change you? Come to him. Repent of your sin. Rest in Christ. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We have just engaged a very somber message. Father, we pray that this message will awaken someone. Someone who is depending on their own righteousness. Someone who is self-deceived for many are on the broad road that leads to destruction, and few are finding the way to life. Do not let us walk in deception. Help us, guide us, open our hearts to believe the things that were said. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.